The following audio is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that this recording will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Continue along today in our series in the Book of Job, in our series of six messages. We started it off last week, and for those of you who might be taking notes today, I want to uh, give you the big idea of the sermon. There you go. All right, this is just a bit of a um, new thing that we see that's going to trial to it to sort of help start people out uh, a bit as well in terms of uh, your note taking and getting as much out of the messages. Alright, so the big idea today of the message is this. Why people suffer can be hard to understand sometimes. But the Christian response in the midst of suffering is to trust God and to those who are suffering, show his love and kindness. Okay? So to show his love and kindness to suffering people. That's the big idea. So if you uh, sort of try to take notes, what I might get happy to do actually is that uh, we might include this as the as part of the newsletter that I send out on the uh, each week as well, right? So just in case you don't have to ask too far. All right, so Peter, you can tell me what's the, uh, what's the movie? What's the movie? Oh, it's Toy Story, that's right, Toy Story. Who knows the song from Toy Story, You've Got a Friend in Me? Yes, you know that one? Yes? All right, I'm not going to sing it, but you know, it goes like this. It says, You've Got a Friend in Me? You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, you just remember what your old pal said. You've got a friend in me. And the next verse goes, You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. You've got troubles? I've got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and we see it through. Because... You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. That's right. You know, Woody and Buzz, they shared this, this really special friendship in these movies, didn't they? A really special friendship. And it's pretty cool, I think, to have friends like that. Let's go back for a second. It's really cool to have friends like that who stick by you no matter what. Isn't that true? If we've got friends like that in our lives, isn't it great to have friends like that? Today we're going to be introduced to uh, the three of Job's friends. And I think, you know, Job may have been hoping that these friends would be people that he could count on as well. Just like Woody and Buzz could count on each other, Job is hoping that he could count on his friends. We're introduced to them actually in Job chapter 2. So if you might like to turn in your Bible, if not, you can follow along on the screen. These friends are introduced to us in Job chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, where it says this. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each to his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together and came to show him, that is Job, sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. 
Jesus goes on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. So they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends came, they saw that Job's suffering was very, very great, and they sat with him there in the dirt for seven whole days, a whole week, and no one said anything. Has anyone, have kids, have you ever tried, you know, going a whole week without saying a word? Yes? It can be pretty hard for some of us, kind of. For some of us, that's an absolute delight and joy for all you guys. Uh, what do we call them? Uh, introverts? Yes? A whole week. Sadly, though, the kind of comfort that they seek to offer Joe, that these friends seek to offer him, I think it's certainly not the kind of comfort that we might hope, that the Job might hope for, or what we might hope for if we were in Job's shoes. Last week, we were introduced to Job, weren't we? If you were here last week or you're listening online to the, uh, to the live stream, we saw that Job was an incredibly wealthy and prosperous man. A man who had all these incredible herds of livestock and, and many, many servants. We were told that Job had a, an extremely large family. In fact, he would be blessed with ten children, seven sons and three daughters. We were also told about Job that he was a very godly man, that he uh, was, was a man who feared God, so he was blameless and upright. He was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. A very godly man. Of course, later on in, that, uh, in those opening two chapters, we're actually then taken into the, to the heavenly realm where God is. And we, we listen in on two conversations between God and Satan. And Satan thinks that Job only worships and obeys God for what Job can get out of it. You know, that, uh, that Job is happy to, to, to worship God, providing that God continues to pour out the blessings on his life. And in fact, Satan says to God, you know what? If you take away all of Job's blessings, all of his wealth, all of his prosperity, all that sort of stuff, then I bet you that Job will curse you to your face. And so God says to Satan, well, I'll permit you to do that, but you're not to harm Job in any way. I'm perfect. And so Satan goes, and we know that, 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 that Job loses all of his possessions and all of his children are tragically killed in one piece. After this, we, read, we see again that Satan comes back into God's presence and says to God, that even, after, you know, even after all the calamity that came upon Job, Job still worshipped God. Even in all the midst of that suffering and that hardship, Job continued to trust God and to worship Him. Such those wonderful words, you know, from, uh, from Job, and they ring out to us where Job says, you know, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job's uh, confidence in God. So then God allows, you know, God, Satan comes before God again and he seeks to convince God that if, you know, that if you actually hurt Job in his person, if he caused incredible physical suffering in Job's life, then he will indeed, you know, uh, curse God to his face. And so God again allows Satan to go and help Job, but not to kill him. And so we see that Job is afflicted with this horrible disease that just He's covered from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with all these horrible, touching sores that are just a bit and it's 
causes incredible suffering and sickness in his body. And then in chapter 3, we hear Job lament his awful circumstances. He mourns, you know, this condition that he's going through. And he wished that he had never, ever been born. And that death would come and end his suffering. In chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, Job says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not see it nor light shine upon it. And then in verse 11 of chapter 3, Job says, Why did I not die at birth? You know, when I came out from the womb, and you know, why didn't I just come out and die? Why didn't I just come out and die? Verse 20 and 21 says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who longs for death? But it comes not, and we dig for it more than hidden treasures. They rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the blood. He was joked that, you know, the, the desire in part was just, his life would just end there and there, there and there. The God would just end his life, and not like he would have, he would be free from his suffering, from the hardship that he's going through. You know, it's incredibly hard to watch someone's life suffer, isn't it? Isn't it? Incredibly hard to watch someone's life suffer. We want to help them in any way we can. We want to take away their pain somehow if we're able to. Wouldn't we do that? For those we love who are going through such hardship, if we could just take that pain away, we would. It would just fix them. And I believe that, you know, that this was the aim of Job's three feet three friends. That's what it comes into today, isn't it? Okay, Job's three friends. I think that they, that they started off with really good intentions of wanting to help them. I'll try to ease his pain and his suffering. The problem was, though, that they ended up causing Job more pain and hardship. And it came about as a result of their, their flawed understanding, if you like, of how God works and God's character. You might sum it up this way. They, they, Job's three friends believe these two things about God. Firstly, they believe that God is absolutely in control of all things. He is sovereign. Now, that's right, isn't it? Yes, it is true. God is indeed sovereign over all things. They also believe that God is just, that he always does what is right and fair and good. Again, we can give them a tip for that, can't we? All right, because that's, that's exactly who God is, what, what he's like. However, when they took that, they then took that a step further and believed that because God is in absolute control, because He is just, that God runs the world according to His strict rules of justice, and that means that God always rewards good and punishes evil. Is that right? Mm, yeah, let's consider that, shall we? Let's consider that as we take it through this particular journey. The Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's understanding about God is that sin leads to punishment and suffering, and good and righteous behavior leads to favor and blessing. That's what they believe about God in the land of Israel. Thank you, so if you remember back to last week, that God is experiencing all of this tragedy and suffering in his life. Is it because he was bad? What have we learned about Job? Job was blameless and upright. A 
man who still thought he was going to write some English. Hmm. It's a Doug friend. They, they sort of, you know, Doug experienced the world of tragedy and suffering could only mean one thing. That Doug had sinned against God. And each of these three men then take it in turn to try to get Doug to understand it. In chapters 4 through to 27 of Job are a series of speeches that are given by his friends and where Job responds to them each individually. And three cycles in fact. And in each of those cycles, each of those speeches, they, they grow in intensity, they grow in passion. His friends get angrier and angrier at Job, and Job gets angrier and angrier at his friends. At his friends. See, their goal is to get Job to admit his sin. But not only that, but they think that if he repents and seeks God's forgiveness, then they're certain that God will restore Job and make his life all better again. So let's take a quick look, shall we? We're just going to do a very, very quick survey in these opening chapters of these three friends' first speeches. Okay? So we start with Eliphaz in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Eliphaz said, Then Eliphaz the Shemanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, God, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? But remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. It goes on in the next chapter, in chapter 5, where, uh, where Galatians continues and says, As for me, if I were in your shoes, in other words, Job, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Behold, Blessed is the one whom God receives. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheep gathered up in a season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true, so fear God and know it for your good. That was Eliphaz. Basically saying, Job, if you just admit your sin, repent, you know, God will fix it all, he'll make it all better again. You know, you'll go to your grave in a ripe old age, everything will be really, really good. Job, we've searched all this out, we know it's true. You just need to feel it for your own good. That's what Eliphaz said. In chapter 8, we get Bildad's first speech. I'm just picking out a few verses here so you get the highlights, so to speak. In chapter um, what have we got there? Chapter 6. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. I missed, I missed a, uh, a point. So Job, after Eliphaz speaks, Job is particularly not impressed with Eliphaz's counsel. He's not particularly impressed by what he says, and he likens Eliphaz's comfort, or his so-called comfort, to thirsty travellers hoping to find water in a riverbed that ends up being fine and dry. And this is what uh, Job responds to in chapter 6, verse 15. He says, My brothers, are treacherous as a torrent bed of torrential streams that pass by, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. 
the caravans turn aside from their course, they go up into the waste and fall. The caravans of Shemar look, the travellers of Shemar hope, but they are ashamed or disappointed because they were confident they came there and they were disappointed. In other words, you know, David's saying, you know, you've got these people who are traveling in the wilderness, you know, and they're in the hot sun, they're looking for the water to, to give them, you know, to quench their thirst, to give them some kind of comfort, and they go to these places where they think they're going to find water, and they don't. They're disappointed. And this is what Job says, I'm coming to you, Eliphaz, looking to find comfort in my pain, and instead I end up disappointed. He's disappointed if someone who's going to a, a, a visitor, taking the time to get a Chapter 8, we build that stand. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, where we read this. Then Gildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? And my servant say them. The words of your mouth be like a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children, I mean, Job has just lost ten children all in one day. All his children have been tragically killed. And this is what Bildad says in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, that against God, then he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. In other words, Job, your children died because they were dreadful sinners. What an awful thing to say when you're building if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself to you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So, how good are those those comforters being spoken? That's pretty good, aren't they? Well, let's listen to what Zophar has to say in chapter 11. Verse 1, then Zophar the Malamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go on answer? In other words, Job has you know, sort of has, has, has had something to say about what his other friends have been saying. And he said, you know, he's had this great big long speech. And Zophar said, Should a multitude of words go on answer? And a man full of talk be so bright? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Oh, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you, Job, less than your guilt deserves. In other words, Zophar says to Job, you know what, mate? God isn't even punishing you as much as he should punish you for your sin. You think you've had a tough well, it could have been a heck of a lot tougher if God had been merciful. Or that's right, if God had been really properly just towards you. That's what God has to God, you've been led up to that in our These men would speak a second time and Eliphaz and build out a third time before they are finished. And each time, as I said, they get harsher and angrier at God because he refuses to agree with their conclusions. Having listened to these men sprout their so-called wisdom, they said, you know what? He said, yes. Then Job answered and said in chapter 19, How long 
will he torment me and drive me in pictures with their feet? See, in a world of so many symptoms, they have a healing effect or they can have a destructive effect. And that's what God is trying to explain to your world instead of being cancer actually drives me in pictures. I remember one many, many years ago, with uh, publishing media conversation between uh, one of uh, uh, between our girls and one of their little friends. I can't remember how old they were getting there now, but something had happened, and this little girl said, My heart, you have crumpled my heart. You have crumpled my heart. What God is trying to do is crumpled my heart. I wonder God refers to his friends in chapter 16, verse 31 to 3. As miserable comforters and a bunch of windows. So, before we look at what these guys got so terribly wrong, let's look at what they got right, shall we? Let's start there. I think we need to start with the problem. What God sent got wrong. First of all, the first thing they got right was that they took the time to come and be with God and His suffering. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, When they heard of all this evil that had come upon Job, they came into his own place to be with him. You know, I think it says a lot for someone who was going through a really difficult time that people would, would care enough about them, that people would love them enough in order to drop whatever it is that they were doing and come and be with that person in the midst of their friendly group. I don't think that says a lot about how you know, the love and the care of those people when they do that. We ourselves have been recipients of God's amazing grace. We've sung about it already this morning. But in the, the grace that we've received from God, that we should extend that same love and grace and kindness and compassion and mercy to those that are in the world. Another response they got right was that they emphasized with God in His pain. It says that they wept and they wailed, they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. In other words, what they were doing here is that they were actually trying to enter in to Job's suffering to show that they mourn with him in his pain and in his loss. Chapter 2, verse 13 goes on to tell us that they sat with Job on the ground and spoke not a word for seven whole days. One of the things that I've discovered over the years in endeavouring to try to minister in a the times that people are going through get very difficult and challenging times is that, you know, I've I, I heard people say afterwards, you know, that they don't necessarily remember what I said at that time. But the thing that they did remember was the fact that I was there. That you were going through. You know, so, you sit to sit with someone and cry with them Sometimes in these times of war, then in the war, we can think of it as truth. Just to sit and cry. What does the Bible tell us? To mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. There are also things about God that these sort of God's friends got right in the way they act. And they exist that they affirm God's sovereignty in the chapter. We've already given the picture of it a little bit earlier. See, they were right in saying that God does punish sin. In fact, as we go through the Bible, we see 
God punishing sin. We go back into Genesis 6. We see the flood. You know, the, the world is just full of evil, and God said, I've had enough. And He flooded the whole world apart from Noah and his family. You know, in, in Leviticus 10, we read of, you know, uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who actually offered uh, sacrifices to God in a, in, a, in a wrong way, not according to the way God had set them. They sort of tried to, uh, you know, take matters into their own hands, try to speak in terms of worship, and they themselves worship. We see in the history of Israel how God, you know, in the midst of Israel's sin and their rebellion and rejection of God and His ways and His, and his leaders, you know, God sent them, you know, prophet after prophet, warning them, turn back to me, repent before it's too late. But God eventually took Israel into captivity in the Babylon. We see it also in Acts chapter 5 in the story of Ananias. We see that God indeed punishes sin. As we go through, as we read through the speeches of those things, and I encourage you to do that, by the way. And look, it takes it probably about maybe three quarters of an hour to read these chapters. As you go through, you'll see in fact that they highlight some wonderful truths about God. So where they got off track was in thinking that it would be utterly inconceivable for all humans to get right to Utterly inconceivable for God to act differently to their understanding of how God justice to the They assumed that Job was being punished for his sin. In fact, they'll even go so far as to speculate what this sin might have been. Listen to these words in, in Job 22, verses 5 to 11. Is not your evil abundant? says Job 22. There is no end to your iniquity. For you have exacted pleasures of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the fate of man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty in the arms of the father with the cat. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water that covers you. In other words, they're sort of trying to think of ways that God may have sinned. They're thinking of saying, God, the only reason you were good, rich, and, and prosperous is because you've actually done it at the expense of others. And that response they got right was this, that they emphasized with God in his pain. Okay, let's just keep going. They emphasized with God in his pain. Okay, that, that they did. Alright, they wept him well. We've seen all that. There were things about God that they got right, but where they got off track was in thinking that it would be utterly inconceivable. Yet yeah, we've got that as well. We've done chapter two. Sorry about my notes, folks. I'm just trying to catch up here as, I, uh, as we go along. As far as Job's three friends were concerned, and here's where we'll pick it up, they were sure they were right. Chapter five and verse twenty-seven. Job, we have searched this out a little bit. We could not possibly be wrong in our and we see that their system has a lot of flaws. They say that evil is always punished, but Job can see that in fact, oftentimes, evil people prosper. 
You see that in Job 21. And you'll see one you can go back and read a little bit later on. We haven't got time to go read God's friends also had the view that God's judgment was immediate. That God's judgment always operated in the here and now. One commentator puts it like this and says, you know, God's judgment acted like some sort of vending machine. You put in some goodness and out pops a can of blessing. You pop in some badness and out pops a packet of evil and suffering. That's how they see, saw God as working. You know, it's true. But the Bible does teach that what we reap, so that what we reap, we actually can in fact say. This is written to Galatians 6, verses 7 to 8. It says, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man indeed reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. God indeed works this way, but the thing that God's friends got wrong is they thought that God, that God did this immediately. That God never withheld his judgment, and when there was blessing with him, he always gave it immediately. But of course, God doesn't work that way. Matthew 13, 24 to 30 speaks of the wind and the weeds that grow up together, and that they will not be separated until the harvest, speaking of God's final judgment. In other words, God is actually withholding his some of his judgment until right to the end of time. The judge comforted by the thought about the present, they have no place in their thinking for future rewards or future punishment. Another important fact that they started to take into consideration was this. They failed to recognize the existence of God and the work that he does in seeking to destroy people's lives to destroy God's plans. So these guys, they were oblivious to the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on. They are in the midst of a spiritual battle. According to God's plans, evil to them was destroying a human phenomenon. It had nothing to do with a spiritual battle. Okay, the biggest problem with the wisdom of God's three friends is that they've already said the word eternal is that God isn't a sinner. He's blameless and upright. And so their assumptions about Job's suffering are entirely wrong. But Job goes to great pains to maintain that he is innocent and refuses to admit to a lie. Look at chapter 27, verses 1 to 6. Job says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsely, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are wrong. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from you. I hold fast my righteousness, and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my sins. God would not admit that he was living truth if he hadn't. So it's certainly not true in the way that God's friends have And so the conundrum that God faces, or rather the, the, the difficulty, the, 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 the question that should be going on is this. Why is he suffering? If he's good, why is he suffering? And what then does he suffering say about God? That is God's 
question. And it will lead him in fact questioning God. The question which God is indeed just and good. It will lead him questioning if in fact God does actually run the world according to justice. In chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, Job says, you know, it is all one. Therefore I say, he, that is God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Then disaster brings sudden death and mocks and laughs at the calamity and despair of the innocent. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked who covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? And it will lead, these questions will lead those to want an actual audience with God and he demands answers from God. And it's something that God will, in his grace and in his mercy, permit. We'll see that later, because at the end of this book, God indeed actually speaks. And when God speaks to us, he humbles us. And it will actually cause him to repent, not of the particular things that his friends have been accusing him of, but in fact, of his sin of We can sometimes struggle with this in our lives too. And we go through incredible suffering. But trying to understand why a good and loving God would allow innocent people to suffer. Years ago, I've been living through passages in the book, to the end of the book, and that's the end. And I guess the real, the real important thing to be in this kind of situation is that God's suffering. Ultimately, pointed to Jesus. Now, Alphaz asks in, in chapter 4 and verse 7, Who is it that the innocent ever perish? As if to say, No. Do you know what the answer to that question is? Well, it is. Who is it that was innocent that ever perished? Jesus was the innocent one who perished. He was the one who died in our place. You see, here we begin to see a lot of hope because it points us, these questions point us to Jesus into a more glorious and redemptive understanding of suffering. As one commentator puts it for our sake, he says, against such a question, the Bible places a large eternal cross. God's experience can only truly begin to be understood in the light of the cross of Christ. It points us to the fact that suffering is not just about rewarding the good and punishing the wicked. For on the cross, the innocent one, Jesus, perished in the place of the guilty that we might be rescued from God's judgment and wrath and instead receive grace. And in the midst of that, God would glorify himself and bring blessing to countless millions of people. God has a good purpose in suffering. Even though sometimes we may not understand. God's experience not only points us to Jesus, but it also points us to our own experience as well as Christians. Now, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 24, says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions 
for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that he sees his sufferings that, that, that they, in, a, in some small way, reflect Christ's suffering. Not that Paul is saying that his sufferings are able to, to redeem the lost, you know, to pay for the sins of mankind, but instead that his suffering can actually point people to the fact of God's love for us in sending his son. Reminds us of the suffering that Christ went through. It's a, in other words, it, it can point us to the gospel. But what it can also do is show the good that can come from suffering and the joy that God in the church. That's what Paul is saying there. And in the same way, our suffering as Christians can also be a means by which we associate with Christ in his suffering and point others to the hope it can only be found in him as we endure in trust and faith in God and in the strength that he gives us in our suffering. Remember God's words to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul says that he, he had this thorn in the flesh? We don't know what that was. He has got lots of you know, um, ideas of what it may be. Paul prayed to God three times, God, please remove this from me. And God's words to Paul were this. He said, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is in God's God's power and glory can be displayed for all the world to see in the midst of our weakness and hardship. Ultimately, this is what God did. In all of his suffering, we continually see Job coming back to this trust in God. Job 13 to 16, where we just start and read these two verses that just stood out to me in the back row of the embarrassment in all of his suffering. Job 13 to 16 says, Why is he slain by the opposing power? Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before you. Lord, Jake, and I will still trust you, God, but I still want to bring this suffering for you. And we can do that. As Christians, when we suffer, we can take these things to God. And God should be the one who we take these things to. But in the midst of it, we need to then have that, 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 that attitude in ourselves, that attitude of humility saying, God, yet in the midst of it, I know that your wisdom is far greater than my wisdom. In Job 1, 20, 25 to 26, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will see the thunder. And after my sin has been captured for me, yet in my Love that, and the cross is the truth of that. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this audio from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.